If you have a Bible, I hope you do, turn to the book of Daniel, would you please? The book of Daniel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Daniel, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Now, before we get into the message, I, I have a confession to make. Um, I, uh, I was motivated, inspired to bring this message by a world-famous preacher that you may have heard of, Frank Carl. Seriously, some of you remember over in the old building, not long before we moved over here, Pastor Frank did a series on the book of Daniel. Remember that? Well, one Sunday morning, uh, Joy and I were not booked to speak somewhere for cross power, and Pastor Frank was in Daniel chapter 3, bringing a wonderful message, and he was reading through the text, and suddenly, three words caught my attention, just gripped me. Have you ever had a portion of Scripture just jump off the page and just grab you and just will not let you go? Well, that happened to me that morning. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit, I have no idea what the rest of the message was about. I have no idea. I can't remember any of the rest of his message because I'm sitting there and I'm writing out notes and I'm pouring my heart out to God because of how he spoke to me through those three simple words. I want to take your attention to Daniel chapter 3. First, I want us to read verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set, up, set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. The year is 587 B.C. It is the 18th year of the reign of a conceited and neurotic king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He was so filled with himself that he had 
commanded that an image, a statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, made out of gold would be made. And we can probably assume that it was an image of moi, himself. And all were commanded to fall down and worship when they heard all of the music. And this begins the severe trial of some of God's choicest servants. Three young men, very possibly teenagers, by the name of? Absolutely. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's pick up the story again now beginning in verse 8. Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not you serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you be ready that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you should be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, but if not, those three words gripped my heart two or three years ago, and I have not been able to escape them ever since. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. In verse 17, these three young men, again, probably teenagers, 
demonstrate great, great faith. But I would submit to you this morning that in verse 18, they demonstrate even greater faith when they said, but if not. Don't we all love to hear the miraculous answers of prayer that God sometimes sends? We love to hear the stories of someone who is sick, someone ill, maybe on the very verge of death, and God just sweeps down and miraculously heals them. We love to hear the stories of an individual or a family that is in the midst of financial ruin, and they pray, and they pour their hearts out to God, and, and then God just comes and dumps a blessing into their life financially, and they're set free from their financial burdens. Don't we all love to hear the story of the prodigal who has been away from home, maybe into drugs and alcohol and who knows what else, and then the Spirit of God grabs their heart and they come back and they return and repent and the family is made whole again. We all love to hear those stories, and I believe with all my heart that God still performs miracles. I believe that God often miraculously heals a family, heals financially and so on, but sometimes he does not. What do we do then? Anybody and everyone can praise God when things are going well and the kids are acting right. Finances are great. Anyone can sing in the shower but what about singing in the midst of a dark, dark valley or a dark, dark night? Because sometimes God, in his infinite wisdom and, yes, even his infinite love, chooses not to answer the way we want him to. I'm thinking this morning of a young man. He's 18 years old. He's the son of a pastor here in Columbus pastor of a wonderful church, and this kid is such a neat kid, has a heart for missions, planning on going to a Christian college this past fall, and then he developed these symptoms that no one could understand, and after many, many tests, they determined that he has a tumor that has wrapped itself around his heart. It is such a rare form of cancer, they can't even find a name for it, and they want to remove the tumor, but it's so closely knit to the heart they can't. And he's tried this kind of chemo and this kind of chemo and this kind of chemo, and it, it hasn't worked. And thousands and thousands of people around the world have prayed for his healing. The current chemo that he's undergoing right now has shrunk the tumor slightly, but just slightly. Thousands of people praying, and he hasn't been healed yet. He may be. So many things in this life, folks, we don't understand, and we don't comprehend. Back the early part of the summer, Joy and I were driving around here in Westerville, and Pastor Frank called me. Hey, Frank, how are you? Frank says, Bob. Do you know a preacher by the name of Scott Salee? 
I said, yeah, he's one of my best friends. And Frank said, he died this morning. I said, no, 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 you must be mistaken. Scott's a picture of health. He's a young guy. Well, indeed, Scott had died of a massive heart attack. I had been in their church just two weeks before and preached because downtown church, Mechanicsburg, Ohio, most downtown churches and small towns are closing their doors. Mechanicsburg Baptist was growing and expanding. They're getting ready to build a new family life center. They had done a fundraising campaign, and they had absolutely crushed the goal. And Scott wanted me to come and be there that Sunday morning as they announced to the congregation that they had surpassed their goal and they were going to break ground for this brand new building. His wife, who has Alzheimer's, no longer is able to cook breakfast that morning. Scott got up, cooked breakfast for his wife, as he always did, and went into his favorite chair in the living room and just passed into eternity. But Lord, wait, Lord, wait. This is a young pastor, and they're getting ready to build a new building, and his wife has Alzheimer's, and he was the caretaker, God. In spite of what the TV evangelists tell you, life does not become easy just because you trust Christ as Savior. Sometimes the battle gets even harder because we come under the attacks then of Satan. But if not, but if not, here's my goal, here's my desire this morning, folks. When we leave this place, I am praying that God gives each one of us, but if not, faith. But if not, faith. These three young men had such deep-rooted faith that they knew God could deliver them. They knew that. But they also knew that He might not. And it was okay with them either way. If they were delivered, they would praise God. If they were not delivered, they would die praising God. I want that kind of faith. And so I began looking at these three young men trying to discern how did they get but if not faith. And that's what I want to share with you in the next few minutes, although they put the four-hour battery in. Just, just, just warning you. Here's the first thing I see in our text. These three young men had biblical convictions. Want to write that down? Write it down on the back of your bulletin. These three young men had biblical convictions. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Can I interpret that for you? They looked at the king and said, we don't even have to think about it. 
We don't have to give this another thought. We already know what our answer is because they had biblical convictions. They already knew what they would and they would not do. Folks, listen to me. If there was ever a time that Christians in America needed to understand what their real convictions are, it is now. Because probably more than any other time in our history, your convictions and my convictions are not only being questioned, they're being challenged. Folks, it has been so easy to be a Christian in the United States of America for over 200 years. As we have seen people persecuted around the world, we have had it so easy. A person with solid biblical convictions, for the most part, was honored. It was kind of the norm. It was kind of standard. Those days are gone. If you have biblical convictions, you are a radical. You're a nut job. You are a religious fanatic. And you are expected in your job, in your school, and possibly even in your family, you are expected to give up your convictions so you can go with the flow in our culture and our society. I, I, I want to ask you something. Do you know what your convictions are? In your workplace, do you already know what you will and will not do? Have you already made up your mind? Have you already decided that is the line and I don't care what they say, I don't care if I lose my job, I don't care what happens, I will not cross that line because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I will not. Do you know what those convictions are? These three young men didn't even have to think about it. They said, we are not careful to answer you in this question. The answer is, no, we will not bow to your God. Would you write this down if you're taking notes? What is a biblical conviction? All right, you ready? It is a Bible principle we determine to follow no matter the cost. It is a Bible principle we determine to follow no matter the cost. It's fascinating because in verse 12, we realize that their convictions were known everywhere. These Chaldeans came and said, there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province. They knew what these young men believed, and they already knew that these young men would not bow. Their convictions were known in verse 12. They were tested in verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, listen, if you fall down and worship when you hear all the sound, it's okay, it's cool. But if you don't, you're going to be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And obviously, he had the authority to do so. How strong are your convictions? How strong are your convictions? The second thing I see, not only did they have biblical convictions, they had biblical confidence. They had biblical confidence. Verse 17, 
If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. They were absolutely confident in their God and his ability to meet their needs and to deliver them. What is biblical confidence? Maybe you can write this down as well. Biblical confidence is faith in God's sovereignty and goodness without demanding a particular outcome. Hmm. Let me repeat that. Biblical confidence is faith in God's sovereignty and goodness without demanding a particular outcome. As I said, when God is answering our prayers the way we want him to, then it's easy to believe and trust God and praise him. But real biblical confidence is understanding that God can do what he wants to do. They knew that God can and could destroy their enemies, quench the flames, and deliver them. But their confidence was based on the character of God, not their circumstances. We love to say, God is good all the time. Oh, come on. God is good all the time. It is so easy to say that. When God is being good in your eyes, when God is obeying you, when God is answering what you want, then we can say, oh, God is so good. Oh, God is so good. I serve such a good, good God. Oh, this is wonderful. But what do you do when someone you love is not healed? What do you do when you aren't healed? What do you do when those around you are getting raises and they're secure in their job and you're laid off or you get a cut in pay? Is God still good then? What if the prodigal doesn't come home even though you've prayed for years and years and years? Is God still good? Joy and I celebrated our 53rd anniversary this past December. I cannot believe she has put up with me that long. Talk about rewards in heaven, man. And you know, you would think that the longer you're married, the easier it would be with family issues and so forth. You need to go through the tough times when you're young when you can handle it. Then when you get old, when you hit your 70s, things start getting easier and easier and easier. I'm not going to go into details, and some of you know our story, but we've been married 53 years, and right now we are facing by far, I mean by far, the most difficult family situation we have ever faced. Nothing Nothing else even comes close. 
So is God still good? And my answer is yes, he is. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. But folks, listen. We must put our faith and trust in the sovereignty of God and not in the circumstances. Don't allow the circumstances to determine your happiness, your joy, your fulfillment. Find your fulfillment in a relationship with God himself. These three young men said, but if not... If you look at the text, they said that before they knew what was going to happen. Did you notice that? For all they knew, they could have been burned up in the fiery furnace. They expressed this incredible but if not faith before they knew. This could be the end. But they were still trusting God. It reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And Jesus Christ, Son of God and God himself, prayed, Oh, Father, Father, if it could be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, but if not. Now, he didn't say but is not, but he said the same thing. Not my will, thine be done. It's the same thing. To say but if not is the same thing as, Lord, please. But nevertheless, thy will be done. Have you come to that place? In your life, your family, where you have said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The third thing I see just very, very quickly, they had biblical convictions, biblical confidence, and that allowed them to make biblical choices. Biblical choices. They had determined that they would choose to serve God, honor God, trust God, believe God, praise God, worship God, no matter what. They chose that. We are called upon constantly to make choices. Some of them are very, very minor choices. Do we go to Taco Bell or do we go to Wendy's? Well, everybody knows the answer to that. It depends on the length of the drive through line. <laughs> I mean, that's easy, you know? We make choices that are inconsequential, but many times we are called upon to make choices that will impact our lives and the lives of others. And you better be ready to make those choices dependent upon your understanding of Scripture and what God wants you to do, not what your family wants you to do or what the culture around us wants us to do. Our choices must be grounded in the Word of God. And then here's the fourth thing I see. 
They experience biblical comfort. They experience biblical comfort. Because of their convictions, because of their confidence, because of their choices, God gave them biblical comfort. I want to write this down. What is biblical comfort? Here it is. Certain knowledge, Jesus will be with you in the midst of your fiery furnace. Certain knowledge that Jesus will be with you in the midst of your fiery furnace. Three years or so ago when I heard Pastor Frank preach from Daniel 3 and but if not just grab my heart, within a couple of weeks I had developed a message, a sermon. And I know this is weird, bizarre, but I knew that at one time I would preach that message at Genoa Baptist. I didn't know when, but I knew I would preach it. When Pastor Frank called and asked if I would preach, I said, of course, it would be an unbelievable honor to preach to our family at Genoa Baptist. And Joy immediately said, what are you going to preach? And I said, but if not. She said, really? I said, yeah. I'm... She, she said, are you sure? I said, yes. Absolutely certain. That is the message that God put on my heart. But if not. And then I come this morning, and what do they sing about? Somebody being in the fire with you. Carrie Buck did not know what I was going to preach. But I think maybe the Holy Spirit did. What do you think? God gave them biblical comfort. Now what brought them comfort? Well, go over to verse 23, would you just quickly. Daniel 3 verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king! He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Jesus was with them in the fiery furnace, and folks, I am here to declare to you this morning from the authority of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God that when you go through the fire, Jesus will go with you. I want you to know that. The Bible does not promise that you will not go through fiery trials. In fact, the Bible promises exactly the opposite. First Peter, when you go through the fiery trial, not if, when. And then we're told, when you go through the fire, don't think it's something weird. That's the Bernie translation. When you go through the fire, don't think it's strange. Don't think it's weird. This is common for children of God. 
to go through fiery furnaces because that's the only way. He can purify us to use us to purge away the dross and the sin and the mess of our flesh in our lives. God puts us often through the furnace, but never, never alone. Never, never alone. I have no idea what you're going through this morning. I have no idea what your family is going through. I have no idea what you are facing, but I know this. You have not been abandoned. You have not been left alone. You have not been forsaken. The Lord Jesus Christ is with you in the fire. But if not, well, think about this just for a moment. We love the way the story ends. They were delivered. And it says that you couldn't even smell smoke on them. I just got another car. It's a used car. It's not new, but it belonged to a smoker. The guy that I got it from says, I have put every chemical known to man in this car. I have sprayed, I have soaked, I have saturated, and you open the door still, and the first thing you smell, oh, there was a smoker in this car. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says you couldn't even smell smoke on their clothes. You see, when you go through the fire, you will come out through the other side and you won't even be able to smell smoke on you when you do come through. When you will come through, I don't know. How you will come through, I don't know. But here's the point I wanted to make. What if they had burned up in the fire? Would God still be good? Hello? Would God still have been good? Yes, he would have. He just would have chosen another way to get glory. All right, coming to the end. Mercifully, huh? Here's the thing I want you to take home with you if you miss everything else this morning. Our part, our responsibility is to surrender to a sovereign God with biblical convictions, biblical confidence. We are daily to surrender to the sovereignty of God. The rest is up to God. You see, your major responsibility and major privilege as a Christian is to bring glory to God. We all, we all agree on that? The major purpose in our life, the reason why we continue to live and breathe is to bring glory to God. We agree on that? Can I get an amen? amen. That is our major purpose. It is none of your business how God gets glory. What's not up to you? It is your responsibility and my responsibility to surrender totally, fully, completely, unconditionally to the sovereignty of God and then leave the rest up to Him. 
with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God chose to deliver them miraculously, and he received glory. If God had chosen not to deliver them, he still would have received glory. But you see, so often the glory of God is the last thing in our minds. That's the last thing we're concerned about. We want comfort. We want peace. We want our prayers answered. And the glory of God is distant. How many of you recognize the date, April 20th, 1999? April 20th, 1999. Okay, one person. Anybody else? Let me add to that two names. Cassie Bernal, Rachel Scott. Now how many of you recognize? Probably 10 people. Let me add another word. Columbine. Now how many of you? Yeah, okay. It was April 20th, 1999, that two deranged teenagers went into Columbine High School and began opening fire, and a slaughter ensued. Cassie Bernal and Rachel Scott, two teenage girls were approached by one of the gunmen, and they were asked this question. Do you believe in God? Now, from a purely human, common sense standpoint, those two girls probably thought, he's asking if we believe God. He must be like an atheist or angry at God, and maybe we could save our lives by saying, oh, no, I don't believe in God. They thought maybe that could save their life. But they both replied, yes, I believe in God. Now, at that point, how hard would it have been for the God of the universe to jam the gun? How hard would that have been? How difficult would it have been for the God of the universe to shake the hand just a little bit so the bullet fired past these young women? And what a testimony they would have had. I mean, what a testimony they would have had. They could have gone all over the country. We stood face to face with the gunman at Columbine, and I prayed out to God, and the gun jammed miraculously, and God preserved my life. Wouldn't that have been a great story? It would have been. Or one of them could have said, he missed me. I could hear the bullet go by my ear. But God miraculously caused that bullet to go just to the side of my head. But if not, but if not, and they both died. And I think almost everyone would consider that a great tragedy, and it was. What is our major purpose in life? bring glory to God. Who decides how to get the glory? 
God. As a result of their death, several movies were made that have won honors. A dozen or so songs have been written. And as a result, we can verify that hundreds of thousands of people have come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior because of the death of Cassie Bernal and Rachel Scott. Now let me ask you a question. Do you know of any other teenagers, any other teenagers that are responsible for winning hundreds of thousands of people to Christ? You know of any? If our main purpose is to bring glory to God, those two young women brought glory to God in ways that probably you and I never will. But if not, but if not, do you have but if not faith?